Let's pray. And uh, we'll get started. Let's pray. Pray with me, please. Father God, thank you so much for tonight. We can just fellowship and love one another and love you and encourage one another. And Lord, we're so grateful for the opportunity to be able to meet as a church. And we're grateful for the things that you're doing and the things you have done. And Lord, thank you for answer prayer. Thank you that you do answer prayer. I know there's praise reports uh, of, of your provision and healing and uh, you're just moving on, on people's lives, God. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would lead us as a church and that you would give us uh, your, not only your, um, your direction, but also provide um, uh, for us as a church. Uh, I ask tonight, Lord, that you would uh, speak through me. I pray that you would put your words in my mouth. And Lord, I pray that you would bless our time in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we have been going through the book of Ephesians. So I want you to open Ephesians chapter 4. And um, we're going to cover a lot of material tonight, okay? We're going to cover one verse. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, I mean, one verse from Ephesians, but a whole lot from other places. So, <laughs> hey, there's no... Uh, you know, the Bible is the Bible, the Word of God is the Word of God, so wherever you want to, wherever we are at, we're, we're going to dig in, and so um, tonight we're going to talk about attitudes towards work and possessions, our attitude towards work and possessions, and <clears throat> if you open up to Ephesians chapter 4, the verse we're going to look at is in verse 28, so let me read that verse, and then I'll give you a little context before we, we dive in. Paul says, he who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. All right, there you go. There's the verse. There's the one verse, and it's, um, it's sort of uh, it's just sticking out there. So let's go back here. In the context of this chapter, Paul is actually dealing with what it means to be a Christian and what it means to have put on... To, to have taken off the old self and put on the new self. Um, go back to uh, verse 20. Paul says, But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self. And that old self is being corrupted in accordance with lust of deceit. And that you put on, or that you be renewed rather, in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So, what Paul does here is, first of all, he bases everything in doctrine. Everything we do as Christians is based on truth, right? Christianity is, is not just a bunch of do's and don'ts, Okay? It's one thing, if I were just to say, you know, here's, here's, here's a bunch of things to do, and didn't give you the basis of why I'm telling you this, it would be just very moral, okay? You would have no basis of how to think about things. Uh, Paul spends the first three chapters on, on doctrinal stuff, and a lot of us, you know, myself included, I, I like to get to the practical stuff really fast, but if all you do is follow do's and don'ts, then you don't need the Bible to live a moral life. You can be a non-Christian and live a very moral life. 
in the eyes of people, right? Paul is pointing out the fact that we are new in Christ. There's a new person. There's something brand new about us. Um, the things that were true of us before Christ have been put off, and now we have something brand new. So Paul is going to say, okay, now you've done this. I'm going to challenge you now to act in this accordance based on that truth. In other words, you don't live a certain way. You don't live in a new way in order to get new. You live a new way because you are new. Okay? So whenever you want to, you, here's just a, just a practical thing is, if you want to correct a behavior, say, in your kids, it's one thing to correct the behavior, don't do this, but you have to also correct the heart and the thinking behind the behavior. And you want to change that, because otherwise you're just going to be <laughs> spending a lot of time and not having any true change. You want to deal with the heart. So Paul is pointing this out, and so then he gets very practical. In verses 25 through the end of the chapter, he gets very practical of what this looks like. And the context of the section is on living as a community and living as, as a body, living as a church, what that looks like. And before, he had talked about in chapter 4 about walking in a manner worthy of your calling. And he says, now walk with humility and gentleness. And then he says, walk as one. Okay, walk as one. Walk as one group. Uh, and we looked at that several weeks ago. Now in this part, he says, now what does that practically look like? How do you walk in your new self, in, in a, your new identity in Christ, that enhances this community, enhances this relationship. Now, he's talking to the church in general, but this also breaks down to relationships with the marriage and relationships between coworkers and, and everything else, you know, families, things like that. So he says, first of all, your new self, you put on truth. He's, uh, we talked about this. This is just a review. He says, you lay aside falsehood and speak truth one, with one another. If you want unity in relationship, it has to be based on truth, Right? Relationship that has lies in it will not, will not stand. There's no trust, there's no foundation, it crumbles or is very, very weak. Okay? The second thing he said, and this is what we talked about, was it last week we talked about anger? We just, I don't remember. See, you remember last week it was a blur to me because I was sick, you know, so I don't remember what I said. But if I said something that made you angry, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. <laughs> but he said, now, the other thing is now, you can walk in your new self in anger, but in a righteous anger that's limited and not long-term. He says, be angry, but do not sin. You're going to have anger. You're going to have righteous anger. You're going to have unrighteous anger. But if you don't have unrighteous anger, don't become bitter and hold on to it and wait for somebody to, to whatever, before you forgive them. But also, if you're going to have righteous anger, put, put a limit on it because it can still affect you and it can still open up the door for the devil to, put, to bring havoc in your life. Some people that have anger problems or unforgiveness problems is because they, they allowed the devil to sort of have a place in their life. And they can't move forward in their Christianity until they deal with that and basically until they go, walk through forgiveness. Then he goes on to the third thing is stealing. Now, when I read this verse, I was like, man, I want to skip this verse because it's a no-doubt verse. It's like, oh yeah, of course, not supposed to steal. But there's, there's a rich thing, and there's some rich truth in this verse. So we're going to talk about this one verse today. Next week, we're going to talk about our speech. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but that which is such for edification. We're going to talk about that next week. Preview, you know, that's the next verse, so. All right, so Paul's talking about our, he, uh, verse 20, let him, he, he who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor performing with his own hands what is good, 
so that he will have something to share with you as needs. Now, I see in this one verse actually three attitudes towards work and possessions. The first attitude is this, which yours is mine, which yours is mine. That's the attitude of the, the thief. Uh, it's, it's yours, but it's mine. It belongs to you, but I want it. It's, it's, it's rightfully yours, but I don't care. I'm having it. Um, the Greek word that Paul uses for thief is the word klepto or kleptes. We get the word kleptomaniac from that. And it refers to stealing secretly rather than to a violent robbery. In Exodus 20, 15, the, uh, the commandment is, you shall not steal. Uh, Deuteronomy repeats that, and Leviticus 19 says, you shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to another. Interesting how Paul links these all together the same way. Stealing, dealing falsely, or lying to one another. Now, what is Paul referring to in these verses? First of all, in this context... We know he's not talking to slaves because later in chapter 6, he's going to talk to slaves and how they are to relate to their masters. So he's not specifically talking to them here. He's probably not talking to, well, we're assuming, to fellow believers, though it could be likely. He's probably talking to the laborers, and in that day, they would have had seasonal laborers that would have been used to living a certain lifestyle, and in order to get by, they would have stolen. They would have taken things from the marketplace, or even the shopkeepers would have stolen from those who, who worked for them. And so in those days, they didn't have unemployment. They didn't have welfare. They didn't have the things that we have, the you know, programs and things like that. If you didn't have work, if work was out, you, were, you had nothing. And so um, they oftentimes didn't get paid for their labor. They didn't get paid for, uh, for what, or they didn't even save enough. They... Um, got paid, they didn't, you know, weren't preparing for the seasonal times. You know, like some, some uh, work, you know, was seasonal, construction, things like that, very seasonal. Um, how do people steal today? Well, first of all, stealing is, I think, the original sin. Go back to the Garden of Eden, chapter 3. God says, don't eat from this fruit. No, you don't, can't touch it. You can't eat it. You can't eat it. What do they do? They take and eat. That's, thief. that's, that's stealing. It's disbelieving in God, but it's also stealing, essentially. It's interesting that in these verses that Paul is pointing out, the verses here actually are antithesis and the antithesis to what the devil does. Lie, steal, and destroy. He says, take off lying, take off stealing, and take off unwholesome words that destroy. How do people steal today? And I'm not talking to anybody here because I don't know. I think you guys are we're all, we're all honest, right? Like, you know, we don't do Facebook in our office hours, do we? You know, that's, <laughs> we don't do that. Um, um, sometimes we, we, uh, maybe we steal by not, maybe we overcharge for hours. Maybe we say we were at a place and, and we weren't really there. At the work I work at, we have uh, installers that are out in the field, and we, they have new apps now, right? It used to be they would call in their hours, and now they get to use this app. Now, what's really cool about the app, it has GPS. And the company that sold us this app, they said, now, we had a company gave us praise for this app because this one guy was, had checked in to his work, 
and he was, he was at a bowling alley or some other place he was supposed to be, and they caught him. They said, no, you weren't really at work. You, were, you lied to us. You stole from us. And so sometimes people steal by not really um, working fully. They take their time. They kind of take breaks, you know, kind of him and haw, or they maybe put half-hearted effort into something, not fully diligently. Um, sometimes they call in sick. We're not really sick. Boss, I'm, I'm sick again. Man, you are sick every week. Every week you are sick. I wonder why. And you're posting on Facebook when you're sick, you know that. I can see you're posting on Facebook while you're sick. But I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to let you post on Facebook because maybe you're posting from your sick bed every week when you're sick. Anyway, sometimes we steal or some people steal by not paying their debt, not paying taxes. It's interesting that Jesus paid his taxes. Man. <laughs> um, by the way, taxes are, are, tax returns are due by the, my Monday, actually, or you can file extension and it'll give you to October, I think it's October 15th. Some people steal by not paying child support. <clears throat> or maybe they download software or games they didn't pay for, or they watch pirated videos. I don't know. I've never done that kind of stuff before. Um, I don't know how, but I know people who do. Maybe they write a school paper that they don't set the sources. Or, you know, I watch fantasy football at work or, ba- or basketball or whoever watches. We don't watch basketball anymore because the Suns aren't that good anymore. The Bible talks about fraud. Leviticus nineteen thirteen. it says, You shall not oppress your neighbor or, nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you at all night until morning. You're not to rob him of his wages. Malachi 3 says, Then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely and against those who press the wage earner in his wages. See, God's really concerned about the worker here. It's interesting, in the Old Testament, one of the biggest sins that was happening is, it was that the, the working class were being taken advantage of by the kings and people in power. Why do people steal? Well, it's yours is mine. I don't think you deserve it. Um, uh, and some people steal because they don't make enough. And that's, I understand that. They, they fudge on the hours. They fudge on this and that and the other. Maybe they're envious and they look at what people have and say, well, I want what they have. And so they get envious or jealous. Some people are just prideful and say, well, I deserve better. I deserve what you have. Paul says, he who steals must steal no longer. Again, I was reading this verse. I say, Paul, why would you put this verse in here? It's like a no-duh verse. You're not supposed to steal. But it's very easy to slip into taking advantage of things that and not being fully there. Um, maybe it's taking the extra cup of coffee when I should be doing my work. Maybe he's talking on the phone too long. So there's this, there's this attitude of what is yours is mine, and 
The problem with this, of course, is it's, it assumes too much. It assumes that you deserve what they have. It assumes that it says that what God has given that person is now rightfully yours, that you can handle it. But Paul says, don't do that anymore. It's interesting that Paul doesn't say, now wait for the Spirit to come upon you to do this. He actually says in the Greek, he who steals, stop stealing. He says, stop doing it. Like, you have the power to stop doing it. You don't need to wait for some supernatural stuff to happen. He says, stop it. And apparently, it's, it was going on. The whole thing with stealing speaks to a deeper issue, though, and it speaks to a deeper thing of God's provision. Because at the, bottom, at, at, the, at, the, at the end of the day, and the bottom line is, do we really trust God for his provision? Is God really in control, providing, and, or can he provide what we need? Uh, we'll get into more on that in a second. <clears throat> second. The second attitude, the second problem attitude, or it's actually, it can be a problem, the second attitude is, what's mine is mine. That's number two. What's mine is mine. Now, this can be an attitude that comes in the second part of the voice. Uh, voice, verse. I don't know what I'm saying. I'm speaking gibberish up here, you know. <laughs> Boy, verse. Can't speak English. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good. There it is. Paul actually says, you need to work. That's a no-duh, again, you know. Now, when he says labor, it's interesting. He's, he uses the word kapayo, which it's a word that means to labor to the point of exhaustion, to labor to the point of weariness. How many of you guys know what it's like to labor till you're exhausted and weary and you're spent? Yeah, I know. That's what this word means. Actually, it's a word that also means tired. When Jesus is traveling to Samaria to meet that woman at the well, it says that he was tired, or kapayo, from his journey. Same word. It means to labor. It's, it's, it's a physical tiredness induced by labor or work, exertion or heat. Paul says that in everything I showed you in Acts 20 to 35, in everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words. It's better to, you know, um, I cut off my verse there. Jesus says in Matthew 6, Why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil or they do not spin or they do not work that hard. They don't, they don't labor. Same word. Or they're not weary. Jesus says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. But Paul says, You are to work and you are to labor with your hands what is good. In fact, if you look at 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says that when we toil and we worked with our own hands, in other words, part of his ministry was making tents, and he provided for himself for a time in his ministry so he was not a burden to the church he was ministering to. Now, there was a time in his ministry where the churches did provide for him, but there was also a time when he worked. He made tents. That was his, his craft, and he toiled, and he didn't want to take advantage of anybody. <clears throat> when you work... <clears throat> You're fulfilling a good thing. Work is something ordained by God, and it's a good thing ordained by God. Work actually is given by God to Adam before the fall. You know that. In Genesis 2.15, God tells Adam, I don't have my verse out here, God tells Adam, 
Let's see who's faster, me or you, uh, Daniel. In Genesis 2.15, Then the Lord God took man and put him into the Garden of Eden to, to cultivate it and keep it. This is Genesis chapter 2. Adam had work to do. God designed Adam and, and us to work. It's a good thing. It's given by God. It's given before the fall. The problem was when the fall came, work became difficult. You had to work extra hard to see the, the fruits of your labor, right? But the, the meaningfulness in having work, there's a, there's a meaningfulness, is still there. It's just now it takes longer to, to see the, you know, there's, you're battling against things. You're battling against, okay, hum, come on, I'm getting older, <laughs> body doesn't work as, as well as it used to, the mind doesn't work as well, you get tired easier, you know how it is. You got your kids who are young, take it, appreciate the fact that you're young because someday <laughs> you're going to say, oh man, if I only were younger again and have the, the, the strength that I used to have. It's part of life, but part of the fall is the fact that we get tired. Now there's two extremes with our work. Some people can work their tails off and they're workaholics. How many of you guys are workaholics? You know you're workaholics. You just can't put the thing down, right? You're on one side, you because you just you just you just it's all you think about is work, right? So on one extreme, there's a workaholic, and I, I think I'm in and that that's it is hard for workaholics to relax. If you go on vacation, you can't relax. You're constantly worried. It's hard for you to unwind. If you go on, if if they say go out for a couple weeks vacation, it takes you a week and a half just to un, just to feel like you have permission to unwind, right? And the other side, the other extreme is laziness. And laziness is just leisure and kind of not really discipline. Both are extreme for different reasons. and Both have their own attitudes towards work. The workaholic uh, who works himself believes that his work is the main reason or the main means to fulfillment in life. The workaholic thinks that life can't go on without him or her in that job. Their value and self-worth is tied to their work. Now, most men, guys, what do we talk about the first time we meet in a guy? What do you say? What do you do? Our identity and our, our manhood, our self-esteem is tied to our work. And for good reason, because there's meaningfulness, there's goodness in doing work. But sometimes we could take it to an extreme where it supersedes relationships, it supersedes everything else valuable in life. And we get so stressed out. We have heart attacks or we have panic attacks or we just go off on our kids and our wife or something, you know. In Japan, it's interesting, if you look at Japan, they have a very successful, um, either second or third um, economy in the world. And they are workaholics. But they also have a high amount of stress and suicide and divorce. On the other side of the equation, the other extreme is laziness. And of course, you know, these are people who, no, I'm not, okay, I'm just going to, I'm going to be gracious, okay? These are people who want to get something for nothing. They want to get ahead of life without putting in the work. They're envious of successful people, and they feel that successful people should, be, should feel guilt and shame because they have stuff. 
and I don't know, maybe they just want to buy lottery tickets and get rich, you know, overnight and, you know, whatever. But that's the other extreme towards work. But there's benefits that God gives us towards work. First of all, God ordained work. He, of course, as I said before, it's morally good because God works. God works six days. He took a rest on the seventh day. Jesus works. Jesus says, my work is to do with the will of him who sent me. My food is to do his will, right? He gets satisfaction. That's my, I came here to do the Father's work. Thank God that he kept on to his work, right? He was diligent in his work. He didn't slacken his work. Jesus works. God himself works. Jesus, in fact, had a hard time with the people who were against him. And he says, listen, my father's working until now. And I myself am working. Working's a good thing. When we work, we participate in godliness. Work gives us a chance to be like God. We are doing something meaningful for the benefit of somebody else. Think about this. I used to think, if I would ask you, what are the, some of the most spiritual things that you can do in life? We would maybe would say you're a pastor, or a prayer person, or a counselor, or a what? Missionary. missionary. Yeah, spiritual people go become missionaries in Africa, right? Now, people in Africa need to hear Jesus, and there needs to be missionaries. There needs to be pastors and teachers and things like that. We used to, and I used to think, I'm not very spiritual in my job. So I want to become spiritual and do the spiritual stuff and have a uniform and a collar or something, you know, and look the part. But if you think about it, I think there's more spirituality in your work. Think about it. If your work, whatever you do in your job, benefits somebody else, you're helping somebody else in what you do. Pedro, you do fantastic. You do landscaping. You do um, um, handyman stuff. You are a blessing to guys who either don't have the time or the, or the, or the know-how to do that. You're a benefit to people. That's huge because then you're relieving, you're relieving stress off of somebody else. So whatever, whatever he's just one example, whatever you do, is a blessing because it helps somebody else out in their life. If that's not godly, I don't know what is. You participate with God in that. Some of us are very creative, whether it's being a flower, arranging flowers for somebody or doing paintings or writing songs or whatever. That's, or making, making furniture. Making, somebody made this wonderful drum here. That is godly. It feels good to contribute, doesn't it? It feels good to do something and know that our work means something to somebody else and we feel value in that. And we have a sense of accomplishment when we do stuff. God actually saw that his work was good, right? God rewards work. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord whom you serve. Now think about that when you go into your work and you have that, that boss or that person above you that you can't stand, that you can't put up with. You're actually working for God. 
You look past that guy, he's just, <laughs> or a lady, and you're working for the Lord. You have that attitude. Now, the attitude I, I said was, what's mine is mine. Here's what happens when we work, is here's what can happen. The first attitude is what? What's the first attitude? What's yours is mine, the thief. The second attitude to watch for it is, what's mine is mine. I work my tail off. I'm not going to share with anybody else. It's mine, Right? Mine, mine, mine. I, I heard a story of a, of a, of a couple, married couple, and they came in for counseling to another pastor, and, and the guy was very, very successful, but everything was in his name, and he would not give his wife or kids nothing. He said, well, it's mine. I worked for it. It's my money. It's my stuff. My things. Mine, 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 right? And, and he was married, and this poor lady didn't have any resources to go buy stuff and take care of the kids and do, you know, do things that girls want to do, shop and things like that, enjoy themselves. Needless to say, I don't know if that, I don't think the marriage lasted very long. If you just work just to get it for yourself, then you are missing something. Because the same thing that the thief thought that said, what's yours is mine, has the, has the thinking that this person says, what's mine is mine is this, that that stuff will fulfill me and nothing else can. See, here's the thing. I remember I was in college, back in college, it was um, back in the 80s, and yeah, I know, I'm old, <laughs> back, in, back in the 80s, you know, and back then, like Lamborghinis were it, right, like fancy cars, you know, so I, of course, I can't afford a Lamborghini, right, but I can go to the store and buy a poster of one, right, <laughs> so I still remember, come on, I'm, I'm a freshman in college, and I'm like, ah, I'm gonna, I'm, and, and I'll, you know, all the other kids at college, they all have their, you know, car posters and sports teams and all that kind of stuff, right? So I go to the store, I still remember, I, and I, I put this poster, this red Lamborghini, because I'm like, yeah, I just want that, because that's going to make me happy, right? I still remember, I put that poster up in my room, and about a minute later, I regretted I ever po- uh, bought that poster, because the feeling I thought I would get in just having the poster, the picture of Lamborghini, was a letdown. Now, if I actually had enough money to buy the Lamborghini, okay, it's cool, but then I have to put it somewhere, and I have to make sure. Now, of course, yeah, if I had a Lamborghini, I would never drive it because I don't want to get an accident because I'm too afraid. And so that means I have to store it in the garage and pay money for insurance that I'm never going to use this car for, and then hopefully nobody, you get the point. The person on this side and the person on that side looks to possessions and things and says, those things will fulfill me, and they don't. That's why people, and listen, there's a blessing with having stuff. The attitude I'm addressing is the attitude that says, it's mine is mine, I don't care what you do, what you say, it's mine, I'm not sharing with anybody. Well, I don't want to, I think it's, I think it's, it's, it's all I can, it's, it's what I work for. Paul says, go back to Ephesians, he says, Paul says, he who steals must steal no longer, but rather he he must labor, he must toil, he must work, performing with his own hands what is good. In other words, he must do something that's constructive, something that's meaningful, something that's going to have benefit to somebody else, to bless somebody's life. It's not going to be just what's mine is mine. It's going to be what's mine 
that I'm going to bless somebody else with. Work is good, but if all you do is work for yourself, not meaning self-employed, but if all you do is work in order to, to, to fill yourself and you think that that's going to get you by and make you happy, you're, you're wrong. You can win the lottery tomorrow, and guess what? It's not going to make you happy. You say, well, John, it's going to help you make, pay the bills. You're, uh, that's right. It'll help you pay the bills. And, and having, having resources and money has their blessings, but it also has their curses as well. It has, it has more worries. Do you know that, how many of you guys like, um, so let me just say it this way. Um, we have stuff, right? You guys have been to our house, we have stuff. And so we started the process starting to declutter. I have a closet, we all have closets, right? I have clothes. How many of you guys have clothes that you don't wear? Okay, only three of us have clothes we don't wear. <laughs> you have clothes that you go in your closet and you just pass them by. You have shoes that have been sitting there because you think you might wear them someday. Except for ladies, you guys have purses and, and shoes that match because the outfit and everything. But as men, I don't, you know. So we started, that we, we, we decided, we, like, we want to declutter. We want to get rid of stuff. I have clothes I don't wear anymore. Clothes I don't want to wear because I don't like them. Having stuff will wear you down. There's something that's freeing, something that does something to you when you let it go. When you say, somebody else can use that, whether you sell it or give it to a charity or something, you know, there's something therapeutic of that. See, we're, it's okay to have, to have stuff, but then what do you do with that stuff? Um, it's um, the purpose of, of work is to, to have something to share. Third point. The third attitude that Paul talks about, and this is the one that he's really getting to, is what is mine can be yours too. Paul says, he who steals must steal no longer, but must, he must rather labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share who has need. He who steals, steal no longer, but rather he must labor with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with those who have need. Now, here's what's interesting. How do you go from being a person who says, what's mine is mine, what's yours is mine, to somebody that says, what's mine can be yours. That's a huge change. That's a big change. And so, that somebody who's, who says, I'm going to steal from, from thievery to generosity is where you're going. The Bible talks about generosity. In the early church in Acts chapter 4, it says that they, there was not a needy person among them, for they were all owners of land or houses, and they would sell them and bring the proceeds for, for sale, and they would lay the, at the apostles' feet the proceeds that would be distributed to each as any had need. Now, early in the church, they thought Jesus was coming back very, very soon. And so they would sell their stuff and then give it to the apostles and say, apostles, whoever has need, take care of that. My, my dream at our church would be someday that whoever has need here, we would find out and be able to connect resources or people to help people out. I think that's what the church, that's what should be our goal, Right? Uh, that we would take care of each other. We, we help each other out, whether physically or, or financially or whatever, to, to be a blessing. I think that's part of what the church is supposed to be. Um, 
And that's, that's you know, sort of the goal. Um, the scripture says that, that um, uh, in Deuteronomy 15, it says, the poor will, will never cease to be in the land, therefore I command you, saying, you shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy and poor in the land. Even Jesus says, you'll always have the poor with you. Tell that to a politician. <laughs> you know, the church is God's means to help take care of, you know, of people. Now, obviously, there's limited on resources, but that's the intent. When we are generous, it's a, t- it's a sign of true spirituality. It's a sign that, that we truly love the Lord. Look at, um, look at the book of Isaiah in chapter 58. Isaiah 58. I'm going to start with verse 1. The prophet has a word against, uh, against uh, Israel or Judah. And he says, Cried loudly, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. That's Isaiah 58, verse 1. And declare to my people their transgression and to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me day by day and delight to know, to know my ways as a nation that has done righteousness and has not forsaken the ordinance of their God. In other words, he's like, you guys are seeking to know me. As a nation, you want to know God. You want to follow God. They ask me for just decisions and they delight in the nearest of God. And they ask, why have we fasted and you, have not, and you don't see? There's like, Lord, we fast. We go to church, we go to temple, we offer sacrifices, we fast, we do the spiritual stuff, right? I write my journal every single day. I sing spiritual songs. I do the spiritual stuff. I listen to, pick your favorite pre- preacher, and, and I give to him sometimes too. Why have we fasted you do not see? Why have we humbled ourselves and you do not notice? Behold, on the day of your fast, you find your desire and drive hard all your workers. Here's a clue. You're mean to your workers. You, fa- you seek me on one hand, and you treat your co-workers and your laborers terribly. Not to mention, I imagine they'd probably do the same things with their family. Behold, you fast for contention and strife and to strike with a wicked fist. You do not fast like you do today to make your voice heard on high. Is it a fast like this which I choose, a day for a man to humble himself? Is it for bowing one's head like a reed? In other words, he said, is it like this for you to go around like this and be all contrite looking, you know, and, and act apart? And spreading out, and you put out sackcloths and, and ashes as a bed. And, you, and he says, will you call this a fast, an acceptable way of the Lord? I mean, you're going, to, you're going in, and you're coming before the Lord. You're being all contrite. You're bringing your ashes. You're, all, you're playing the part. Meanwhile, you're treating your workers terribly. Is this, and God says through Isaiah, is this not the fast which I choose to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the, the bands of yoke, and to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover him, to, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? He said, that's the true fast I'm looking for. Your heart has to be in that place. And Paul says in Ephesians, he says, listen, we don't work for ourselves. We work in such a way so that our hearts is sensitive to people in need. Does that make sense? 
that what my, what's mine can be yours, because I want to be sensitive to your need. I want to have that as my spirituality. Go back to Ephesians. So being generous has, is a sign of true spirituality, and God actually remembers those who are generous. He says in Psalm 41, How blessed is he who considers the helpless. The Lord will deliver him in the day of trouble. There's blessing in sharing. There's, there's one thing about, about getting. You, you have the satisfaction of having, but there's something even better of giving. There's a joy that happens. Some of you guys, you experience this, you experience this, right? You have this joy when you give to somebody and you see the look in their face or the satisfaction that you're helping somebody else out, right? That's what we want to be as a church. We want to have the, the sensitivity as a church and as a people to say, where are the needs now? No longer will it be, where can, who can I steal from, right? How many of you guys have, ident- have ever had identi- you know, the identity theft stuff that's going on nowadays, you know? You gotta watch your keypad. You watch your passwords. You know, like at, how many of you guys have to have change your passwords like every three months at work? I'm getting tired of that. I don't know about because I'm running out of passwords to, to to make up, right? But you do that because they want to keep you safe. You know, in your bank accounts, your credit cards. You know, then you get the phone call and somebody says, "Hey, somebody's charging something on your credit." And you know, and you go the whole project because people are there's people looking for advantages, right? He says, "No longer are you gonna be like this, looking for people to take advantage of. You're gonna go over here like this and say." Who can I help out now? Now, how does that happen? How do you go from there to there? Any clues? I mean, I need some help in my notes here. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm, I'm just kidding. The person that goes from there, which, which yours is mine, to which mine is yours, is the person who has been satisfied in God. It's the person who says, I have everything, I, I just became Southern now. <laughs> everything. Do they talk like that in Carolina? Okay. <laughs> I, I have now been satisfied in Christ. I have everything I need. You, you, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, it's, you know what it is? It's in Luke chapter 19, there's a little guy named Zacchaeus, a little short guy. And Jesus is, and he wasn't liked by people, right? He was a tax collector. They hate a tax collector, right? Climbs a little tree. Jesus comes up. He says, Zacchaeus, I'm having dinner at your house. Now, it's one thing about having uninvited guests, but if it's the Lord, then, of course, it's fine. What does Zacchaeus do as a response to Jesus' graciousness of coming over to his house and supping with him? He says what? Look at Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. He says this, verse 8. By the way, the, the other tax collectors and the, the, the other righteous people, they were grumbling. He says, this man has gone to be a guest of a man who is a sinner. And verse 8, Zacchaeus stops and said to the Lord, Luke 19, 8, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. There's a man who has encountered Christ, encountered the grace of God, the kindness of God. His heart's been filled with the things he's been trying to fill his life with, extra money, extra possessions. He finally encounters the grace and love of God and says, I have what I need. Use me, God. I'm satisfied in God. 
A heart that's been satisfied in God will give first. In fact, if you look at 2 Corinthians 8, I'll read it to you. Now, brethren, 2 Corinthians 8, now, brethren, we wish to make you known to the, gra- the grace of God which was given to the churches in Macedonia, that in a great deal of, or, uh, of affliction, their abundance of joy and deep their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. The churches in Macedonia were poor, but they heard of the need of the churches in Jerusalem, and they decided we want to give, even though we are very poor, we want to give. Why? Here's what happens. He says, I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave their own accord. They begged us with much urging to participate in this support of you guys, the saints, and not as we expected, but first, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us by the will. In other words, here's their posi- Their hearts were given to the Christ first, to God first, and that's what overflowed into giving to others. They were satisfied in God first, and that overflowed into giving to others. That's the person who has the attitude, which mine is yours, or can be yours, if the price is right. No, kidding. <laughs> which mine is yours. You know, sometimes things just happen when you're up here talking, you know, you just start thinking, you know, <laughs> door number one, door number two, or number, door number three. <laughs> now I'm just, I'm just thinking, okay. When your heart is satisfied in God, you have what you need. When your heart is satisfied in God, you have what you need, and you want to give. You want to give appreciatively. You have priorities there, and you know that God will supply your needs. You're just like, Lord, we have need here. We know we have need, but you are a satisfaction. Let me finish. With the benefits of, of giving and sharing. The benefits. There's one, two, three, four, five, six. I have, well, five. Five benefits. I have three points and five benefits. How's that? How many points is that? You know, eight points, whatever you know. Five benefits of, work, of working with a view towards sharing with others. First, our work, if we work with a view towards sharing with others, first, it gives our work a higher purpose. If, there, if our mentality is that we work in such a way so that, yes, we take care of our family, we take care of our needs, but we work, we want to bless somebody. Can you imagine if you were strategic in blessing somebody? Hey, there's a family we know about. We want to do something for those people. Let's plan this. And you're going to get excited and get, as a family. What can we do, you know? What can we, how can we bless them? You can be creative and things like that, you know? It gives your work a higher purpose. You're working more than just for, yes, you're working for reasons to supply. Obviously, that's a meaningful thing. And you're working to help others through your job. But then you imagine, with, even if it's little, you say, whatever we have, we, let's set something aside for this other family or for this other need, this other this need that we're seeing. Let's, and it gives your work a higher purpose. Secondly, and I think I pointed this out before, is we experience joy in helping others. That's why they have the whole thing like at Christmas time. They have what, angel tree and the whole, that, that brings joy. You go shopping for a family, for a little kid, you know, whose family is having a hard time and you, you just, or you just, the little shoebox thing. You get excited because you go to Target or whatever store and some store and you put the stuff in there and you get excited about wrapping it up because it brings you joy, right? Third benefit is that you learn to depend on God. God supplies your needs. If, listen, now if God can feed 5,000 men, 
not including women and children, with a couple of loaves and with somebody's lunch. That little boy left house with the, with the bag of, with a couple of loaves and fish and put it in Christ's hands and it blessed somebody else. You learn to be dependent on God for your needs. You learn to love on less. Fourth benefit, you learn to become more aware of the needs of others. I said there was five. I'll stop at four because <laughs> I can't count. But one last thing here. I've talked about working and providing for others, you know. There's one last thing uh, to be said is this. It's the person on the recipient end. Because sometimes you're, maybe you're embarrassed or shy or whatever. Maybe even let your need known or even receiving the need or receiving the help. Sometimes there's this you know, because you do work. And, I, and that's part of life is that we have, oftentimes we have, we have teachers, let's say, they don't make enough. They do the whole walk, they need more salary because they have to live, right? I understand that. Um, part of being in the community, and this goes in the context of Ephesians, part of being in the community is that we let each other know and we help each other out. And if we can at least alleviate the pressure, that would be a joyous thing to be a part of, right? So, Paul says, don't steal. Work with your hands what is good so that you have enough to share with others who are in need. And that, my friends, will help the community become more one, right? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, God, that you are First of all, you are the God who supplies all of our needs, Lord, even in ways that we have no idea. Sometimes, Lord, we wonder where are things going to come from, where are the resources going to come. But you have ways of providing um, that give you glory. We want to thank you and praise you, Lord, for, for providing for our lives. And thank you for um, um, allowing us as a church to... Um, hopefully participate in that, Lord, individually and as a church as well. Lord, I pray for anybody here, Lord, has needs uh, for your supply and for, I know, Lord, for you to meet, we all have needs in here, God. I pray that you would, need, uh, you would meet those needs supernaturally, Lord. I pray, Lord, that uh, as we go to work or do our, our, our daily uh, job and, and the things that we do, Lord, that we would be used by you to bring a blessing to those we encounter, God. And that you would use us, Lord, to uh, impact uh, people around us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.